Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Adam Marcus and Ivan Aransky, co-founders of Retraction Watch. Today you'll hear me weighing my words, but no surprises there, I think. I mean, you'd weigh your words if the two guests on your interview podcast were the foremost representatives of veracity and accountability in science. Kind of just makes a show host want to turn the interview right over to them. You know, maintain a respectable five-foot distance back out of the searchlight circle of scrutiny. But... Scholarly Communication has these intros for a reason, and that reason is to bring the day's episode to you, my listeners, from the perspective which you haven't looked from, which you need to look from, which helps you reconsider things after having considered them once already, which maybe just gives you a laugh. And so here goes today's intro, the intro I weigh my words in. Rejection, mistake. Refutation, misconception. Retraction, misconduct. The words are on a level when I take my ear as standard, and when I take as standard the methods and the communication of research, then too do the words come to a sort of level. I'm not saying the level is flat, even, equal, but don't you think too that the mistake that's made finds answer in the rejection that's issued? And don't you also agree that a misconception a person was laboring under is finally lifted by the others who refute that line of reasoning? And honestly, who doesn't believe that the retraction follows tight on the heels of the exposure of misconduct? I'm just weighing words here, so unless the scales have been tipped, unless I've botched the calibration, well, unless, then there would indeed appear to be both sound and substance to my argument that rejection and refutation and retraction are all performed at the center of scientific endeavor because the performers themselves, i.e. the scientists, are also makers of mistakes, guarders of misconceptions, perpetrators of misconduct. A mistake detected by the reviewer brings rejection on the manuscript. A misconception of the data brings refutation on the analysis. And professional misconduct, which like the bad apple spreads rot through the whole barrel of a research area, shall bring on retraction. I need only tilt, for example, the word bias, B-I-A-S, 
bias. Tilt it slightly to one side, slightly to the other, and I hear the hum of an unperceivable personal bias, which gives rise to misconception and so produces one-sided arguments and selective citation. But tilting the word again, I hear the hubbub of indiscernible group bias, which gives rise to misconduct and so produces fabricated tables and photoshopped figures. I hear these both, the two biases, but I cannot draw a clear dividing line between unconscious bias and malicious intent. From case to case, sure, the innocent and the guilty will typically be found. However, on the evidence of the word bias itself, I don't know, but I can't hear it. What I do hear, though, are the resonances between words and ideas, like those I began today's intro with. Rejection, mistake, refutation, misconception, retraction, misconduct. In listening here, I begin to wonder just how sound a judge my ear can be. Are the words perhaps as light as the air they're spoken on? Or is there any substance to all this weighing of words? Well, yes, I think there is substance. If what I'm saying here has raised questions, and in particular questions of three sorts. First sort, where along the very many lines of research does science intend to reject mistakes in the data or methods? Second sort, how and by which means does science intend to refute misconceived thinking? Third sort, who or which organizations does science intend to monitor findings and claims about these findings, monitoring with the express aims of holding accountable the publication record, of retracting those pages penned in falsehood, of removing misconduct and reinstating integrity, of reinforcing the veracity of what gets read as knowledge. Let me be plain, and let me reformulate these questions into one, into the single question which sounds like this. Where are the points along the multi-step processes of scientific research and scientific communication that rejection should occur, that refutation should occur, that retraction should occur? That is my intro. Those my words. And now I'm done. Because I'd like to welcome today's guests, Adam Marcus and Ivan Ransky, co-founders of Retraction Watch, and right away also invite them both to weigh the words I've been weighing here. Adam, Ivan... Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure. So was this little exploration of words uh, complete nonsense in your view? Who are on the practical side of dealing with misconduct in science and other errors that matter quite a lot? Oh, not, not at all. Um, I think you raised some, some fascinating questions and important questions that Ivan and I have been thinking about for about 11 years now, um, you know, our, our, we don't think a lot about what happens up until the point of retraction, or at least not as much. But uh, but everything that you've raised is really important in the in, in the scholarly publishing process. And when it comes to the point of retraction, um, there are different reasons why something needs to be retracted. And this also becomes important in the actual retraction notice so that people understand, okay, well, the research I had been um, perhaps citing, working from, has this or that particular reason for being taken now out of the record. What would you uh, point to as being some of the, let's say, most frequent or also perhaps most meaningful reasons why retractions are perpetrated? Well, I I think Overall, it's 
worth looking, you know, at some statistics. Uh, of course, we're trying to be evidence-based here and, and scientific, uh, using the scientific method. And so what we have as far as data are that about two-thirds of the time, uh, retractions are due to something that we might consider misconduct. Now, there are various flavors of misconduct. There are various degrees of misconduct. There's out-and-out out faking the data, uh, and then there's something like plagiarism. And then there's something that is probably more common, which is uh, falsifying the scientific record in some way. Uh, you did the experiment, uh, you did the clinical trial, but you didn't include all of the figures that you might have or all of the data that you might have, or you photoshopped out the data that didn't quite work for your hypothesis or your null hypothesis, whatever it may be. And the other sort of third of retractions um, are maybe due to sort of honest error, although given the fact that so many retraction notices don't include all the information that one would hope that they include, we can only really sort of say that about 20% of retractions are due to honest error. Uh, but there's really a, a, a serious range, um, and I would argue a growing range of reasons for retraction. Um, most recently, uh, sort of the industrialization, if you will, of uh, through uh, paper mills and other sorts of uh, really uh, inappropriate, unethical, and in, in some cases, illegal operations, uh, the sort of industrialization of the publication process to a point where uh, things just sort of get mass produced uh, that are, they're not even, they're, they're often gibberish. Uh, and if they're not gibberish, then they're copied from someone else. Um, but overall, about two thirds of retractions are due to misconduct. And can I can I jump in to say one thing about that, which is I think a lot of that would not be possible without the I think Ivan and I might agree that sort of the abject failure of the scientific publishing industry writ large to uh, perform any measure of quality control. So the, there there are there's a, a fraction of the journals do that, but what we're seeing is that many many journals simply do not pay any attention to what they put in their pages, which allows this sort of, as Ivan said, this sort of industrialization of, of misconduct to occur. That raises for me two issues. One brings me back to some of the uh, points I was raising in the intro about where along the line of uh, the research process do we need to start thinking about why somebody is creating retractable science. So perhaps the the industrialization side or the um, reward structure in science. So the pressures that are involved, but perhaps more currently to even just look at some of the most recent posts on the blog, the uh, Mello and Estella article and the FEBS letters seems to be exactly what Adam you're talking about here, where the journals just seem unresponsive. I mean, first off, the editors show that the authenticate software was not something that they could really manage. Second off, during the three-year period in which it took them time to actually respond to your inquiries, 400 citations, or almost 400 citations, go to the article in question. Uh, I mean, how, is this a sort of typical scenario when it comes to dealing with editors? Um, so I, just to be clear, uh, and, and because we want to give credit where credit is due, that was uh, a post, you're referring to a post we recently had up. There was actually a guest post from uh, a researcher named David Sanders at Purdue University uh, here in the U.S. 
Um, and he was the one who made, you know, all the inquiries and frankly did all of the work. Uh, and we, of course, were very happy to have him reflect on that experience on Retraction Watch. Um, you know, it, you, you, I think you started by saying that the editors were unresponsive. And, you know, I think that I, I hate to sound, um, I, I'm certainly not meaning to defend these editors in any way. Uh, but in fact, they they actually responded, um, and I the, now they didn't respond in a way that seemed consistent with the evidence, uh, and it took an awfully long time for them to sort of uh, take concrete action. So you know, overall, yes, it's fair to say that they really weren't responsive. On the other hand, they actually did respond, and I think that that ref- reflects. And to get back to your larger question about how often and when. Uh, editors or really anyone involved in the process actually takes the time to deal with these issues. Um, and I think that we need to, you know, as, as much as we focus on, as Adam said, what happens, uh, you know, at the time of retraction or you're just before and certainly just after, uh, we do try and go upstream because we think that the whole uh, sort of, if you will, uh, again, I, I'll use the word industry, but the whole field, uh, scientific publishing, uh, science, academia, you know, you have to go way, way upstream and think about publisher parish issues and the fact that everyone knows that the final product, uh, what they're really aiming for is that scientific, that peer-reviewed publication, uh, hopefully in a sort of high impact factor journal. In other words, one that is at least by metrics reasons uh, thought of as, as uh, prestigious by the community. And the problem is that if you only focus on downstream, it's it's sort of like, you know, only worrying about, you know, sewage as it's, you know, pumped and then uh, or only having, you know, thinking about uh, a sewage treatment plant at the at the sort of uh, the end of the river as it's, you know, going into the ocean. Um, but actually not sort of thinking too much about the fact that people are throwing, you know, what, what, you know, they're sort of flushing raw sewage or. You know, storm drains and things like that, or, or throwing trash into the river way upstream, and that's you know also where we need to be paying attention. And so, if we're not thinking about all of these various uh, sort of in points at which we could intercede and clean up the river, um, then then it's almost inevitable that even well-intentioned editors, and I should be clear that in the particular case you're talking about, that is a journal that over the years has definitely taken an active interest in this. They actually hired uh, a, a research integrity sort of editor, you know, a person to look at all these issues. So it's the ones that don't even care uh, that I'm far more concerned about. Yeah. And um, if we move perhaps just halfway upstream um, to what's happening in the publication process, uh, publication bias, where essentially it's the positive results um, the, that, 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 that get the high impact journal's attention and that get the most um, publication as opposed to the, the null results, which are seen as uh, less publishable, but scientifically perhaps more significant. I mean, it's, I, I suppose the question I'm driving at is, okay, well, what then is the responsibility of the journals themselves? So you've just made a distinction with, between a journal that was, yes, indeed caring, perhaps not giving quite the response that the retraction deserved, but certainly caring, and other journals who don't even notice the problem. Well, I think that's a, a really interesting question, Daniel. And I, I don't know that we have an answer for it, but I will say 
that the existence of journals that will publish anything um, it, it sort of reminds me of what people said about the uh, about blogs when they first appeared. Do, does science really want to have a blogosphere of really low quality publications that um, that sort of taint the entire process? Now, that's not to say um, that there could that there's a policing mechanism that has to be put in place, but clearly the, the market is not working. I think when it comes to quality control in, in scientific publishing, I'm curious what Ivan has to say about that. Yeah, no, I would agree, and and again, I I, I know that Adam and I are uh, fierce defenders of uh, free speech, and uh, here in the U.S., we of course uh, similarly feel that way about the First Amendment and all of that, and so we, uh, I, you know, I would say we we think people have the absolute right to say whatever they want and get out there and and propose theories and do all of those things. The the problem is that the journals have taken on this. Uh, they've they've taken on, it on themselves to sort of uh, create this imprimatur of of quality, and and you sort of create this binary sense that if something's peer reviewed, it must be sort of legitimate, it must be correct. It, it went through this rigorous process, when in truth the sort of rigor of peer review is highly variable and nowhere near the uh, level of rigor that journals would like us to think and publishers whose very business model is based on the idea that it is going through this uh, sort of, you know, the, the this very rigorous process. Uh, it, it's nowhere near that. And so, again, what you end up with, as Adam said, is a sort of, you know, if you will, and, and who are we to say? We're bloggers, right? But this sort of blogosphere that has no, you know, very little quality control. Um, and again, that's actually fine. It's good to have the free flow of ideas. The problem is labeling them all as legitimate because they appeared in something that takes the shape of a journal, but that actually doesn't do the kind of quality control that journals are supposed to do or that they want us to think that they do. I'd like to offer an analogy since Ivan was talking about sewage earlier. Um, so um, there's a lot of soccer in our country, not nearly as much, uh, you know, uh, per probably per capita is in is in Europe or in South America. But uh, any any on any Saturday, you can go watch a soccer game somewhere. Um, and at the various levels, there are referees who are volunteers until you get to uh, say high school or maybe in the travels. No one would say that the quality of the refereeing at a pee wee soccer game is the same as the Premier League. And yet people criticize the heck out of Premier League referees. They have VAR to as a, as a backstop to make sure they're doing the right thing, and very often they're not. Um, we should never expect, we, yet we call that all refereeing. We use the same term. But we should never expect that the quality of the refereeing when it comes to peer review is going to be the same for the top flight journals as it is for the vast majority of publications that are really, you know, middling at best, so um, it's unreal. It, it is it is an unfair and unrealistic and ultimately disappointing um, uh, uh, rubric. And it sh maybe we need a sort of <laughs> different tiers of refereeing. But the point is, it's not just because we call it peer review doesn't mean it's the same quality throughout. 
You couldn't possibly be because there's so many papers. How many papers a year, Ivan? Just a couple of million? Uh, at least, you know, it depends on the number, but it, anywhere from two to three million by most counts. Yeah. Right. So do the math. It's pretty easy to figure out that uh, you need a, you would need many, many more scientists probably than there are to to, to review those all adequately. And, and with the right expertise, yeah, well, which many times they don't have. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and this, and, and and you hear editors uh, scrambling to find reviewers. Um, if it's if it's a question of numbers and literally looking for somebody um, with those sorts of numbers, it's, I, I think I think the the peewee referee is going to be stepping up sometimes. Well, well right? Daniel, at the risk of saying that I might be a peewee referee, um, you know, we are asked uh, as sort of as the uh, co-founders of Retraction Watch and also our researcher Allison O'Brightus, who actually has a PhD. Uh, she, she studied retractions. I mean, that was her PhD thesis. Um, uh, it, we are asked to peer review papers periodically. And we do that uh, when it's appropriate, uh, when they're about, say, retractions or something that is very much in our, in our wheelhouse. Um, but last year, about a year ago now, I was asked over the course of, uh, I think, about a month and a half to peer review five different papers about uh, COVID-19 from, you know, allegedly reputable journals, all published by Elsevier, one of the world's, of course, largest uh, publishers, private company. Now, I, I just to be clear, I declined the opportunity to peer review those because I am not a, a peer. I am not an expert on COVID-19 or epidemiology or vaccines or any of the things you would want someone to be an expert in. But that just shows the level of desperation. What it also shows, because this is almost certainly why I was asked to peer review that, is that I and, and lots of other people end up in these huge databases of potential peer reviewers, often very inappropriately. Uh, in this case, I showed up, I'm sure, in a, in a database of COVID-19 experts because Adam and Allison and I had co-authored a very short letter, which I, I was a corresponding author on, about COVID-19 retractions. Well, that doesn't make me an expert in any of the important critical public health issues that you would need. Um, and this is just, it happens, it, it, we know it happens every day, um, and it should really make us all uh, very concerned, again, about the, the, the quality and the levels of peer review going on. Yeah, and 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 these are. I mean, I, I find that quite amazing. I mean, <laughs> and if you add to that picture of uh, you being asked to be a peer reviewer on you know, on science that you know is just clearly not in your your area of expertise, if you add to that the the aura that surrounds peer review, which which both you and Adam were getting into, Ivan, uh, the history of it. I mean, this is not a this is this is not the standard that science sometimes thinks it always has been. A wonderful work by uh, Cesar and Baldwin into the history of science has showed that um, it's really a child of the uh, 1960s, 1970s. It's from that period on that we can really talk about a peer review becoming a standard issue point in any publication process. And plenty of papers that today are considered classics weren't peer reviewed. So uh, it, it's it's something I think you know it's it's a point of knowledge. It certainly needs to get out there and spread into uh, the wider scientific community. Well, as a child of the 1970s myself, I agree with you. Um, I, I think, and again, I, to me, the the answer to this, or at least something we should try. I, I never, I always uh, 
try and stop saying things like the answer. There's always many, many answers. Um, one of the things I think we should try, and I, I know that Adam agrees, is actually publishing the peer reviews. Um, now, there are issues around publishing people's names on reviews and, and all sorts of uh, retaliation that could happen because scientists, I'm sorry to say, are just as can be just as vindictive as the rest of us. Uh, that being said, the actual the text of the review without anyone's name on it, uh, the content of that review can really tell you a lot about what actually happened and over time can tell you whether or not a particular publication, a particular journal really is doing what we would hope they would do. Um, there's been a lot of resistance for various reasons uh, to publishing peer reviews. I think there are some there are some sort of what I would consider uh, justified reasons to uh, to sort of consider whether to do that. Although I would still weigh go way on the side of doing it, um, but a lot of those reasons seem to be purely to protect the uh, the, the reputation, uh, such as it is, of the journal in question and the publisher and um, you know, the fact that these peer reviews are done for free and yet uh, academics are really, they feel required to uh, maintain confidentiality of the process. Um, you know, the back rooms are where bad, uh, you know, political deals that are bad for, for the population get done. Um, confidentiality and gag orders, which is what I have started to refer to these as, uh, that's how, you know, a lack of transparency will uh, just continue to create problems and, and not help us solve any of them. You brought up the issue of uh, prestige, the culture in science of, of having sort of renown for uh, in, in, in publishing as well, um, of being a high impact journal, of being someone who has published um, important research and so on. And, and very often, um, I'm thinking again on the broader scale of the whole process of research as we've been bringing up. Yeah, the lab and the author end, the publication end, the after, the after publication, the reading end. Um, but to move towards the beginning of that, very far upstream to the reward system, the education system, and the lab cultures, it would appear that, I mean, a, a finding from uh, published in PLOS One in 2015 by Finelli et al that misconduct policies and academic culture and career seem to be far more um, big, let's say, bigger threats to scientific integrity than very many of the other issues that people often point to, let's say, diversity, gender, and so on. I mean, so I, I'm not sure I understand the question entirely, but I, I will say, like, we have sort of in, in and, and you, you started this piece talking about language and uh, um, which I think is a good way to get into it because we've often, uh, when we first started um, our blog, uh, we were criticized by some people who are now pretty fierce advocates for us because they thought that we were just out to sort of trash scientists and, and, and you know, trample on their good name, which is not what we were doing. But initially, I think we, you know, we weren't sure about the scope of the problem. And we also weren't entirely aware, I think, of the entire landscape of the issues that are facing science, at least I know I wasn't. I don't want to speak for Ivan. Um, but um, one of the things that I think I've learned since we've been doing this is that it's really hard to say what is the biggest problem facing science and how do you prioritize one against the other? And, and clearly, retractions are important. 
They're, they're not the most important issue in science. Reproducibility is really important. Is it the most important issue? Not really sure. I mean, if you asked somebody who was, you know, deeply interested in DEI issues, they might say, well, you know, access to access and, and uh, equity issues are the most important thing. So, I mean, I think we can we can fairly say that these issues are all important, which is most important. You know, I, I, don't, I don't I would hesitate to to say. Yeah, um, I, I mean, there's a, a guest I had on Bradley Alger, who's done work on the scientific hypothesis, shows that reproducibility, one major issue that you you just cite there, is indeed viewed from many different angles, not not an issue, and also then sometimes very much an issue. So I mean, uh, or uh, Martin Paul Eve has talked um, a lot about open access, and it again is not a panacea, right? I mean, it brings with it when it's applied in a blanket format, its own problems as well. So um, it would seem that you would as well agree that with retractions um, and in the area of checking science, uh, it, it's it's standing shoulder to shoulder with very many other parts of the process. Is, is, is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there, there are a couple different almost uh, axes or, or sort of views on that. Uh, one is that is exactly that, which is that there are just lots of issues. Um, and, and by the way, just to remind everyone, science is very much a human endeavor. It is not a sort of, you know, it doesn't exist outside of, uh, you know, humans doing it. I mean, facts exist, you know, and, and, and there is truth out there, even as we get closer and closer to it. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking the actual process. Like, how do we learn these things? You know, um, how is this, you know, podcast uh, more generally looks at, you know, how does knowledge become known, as, as you put it, uh, epistemology. So, but that all requires human beings. It requires human beings interpreting, talking about it, uh, c- you know, collaborating. And so that's that's one part of this that is, that is really critical. Uh, and so therefore, of course, it is multifactorial. But the other thing that's really interesting, uh, and I, I think, again, Adam and I would very much agree on this, is how different fields uh, have and I don't know if it's willing or not, but a sort of um, lack of knowledge, uh, ignorance about what other fields have already done. Um, you know, people are talking now about preprints, for example. In other words, uh, you know, as your listeners, I'm sure know, you know, these are, you know, archive and med archive and bioarchive uh, papers that are uh, that are not yet peer reviewed, but that are, that are posted in, uh, in advance. Um, and they've gained a lot of uh, momentum during uh, the pandemic because of the nature of a couple of these preprint servers being more life science and clinical science oriented. But preprints have been around since, you know, at least 1991. And uh, lots of lessons were learned uh, because of archive, which is physics and math and computer science, et cetera, which, you know, and now all of a sudden people are talking about them as if they're a new issue. Um, one of the reasons a main reason I would say that we launched Retraction Watch was because of a a brilliant bit of reporting that Adam d- did before Retraction Watch about a, a very big case in anesthesiology involving someone named Scott Rubin, who, very long story, very short, was making up all the data in his clinical trials. And so um, Adam broke this story. Uh, Scott Rubin ended up going to federal prison for related charges, et cetera, et cetera. You can read all about it. But um, that was anesthesiology having a moment, which led to all sorts of other moments in anesthesiology, 
where they are really trying to root out these problems. Around the same time, just a little bit later, psychology had its moment. Uh, and also around the same time, cancer biology had its moment. Uh, and so these were all happening. And now what we keep reading, and, and I will say this frustrates me a bit um, uh, when I'm not able to sort of chuckle and laugh about it, although I guess I do that when I'm frustrated as well, is that every field now sort of says, oh, my Lord, you know, here is this huge problem that we must deal with. Look, people are they're faking data and they're oh, oh, publisher perish. And as if it's a new issue. I mean, even within the same publisher. We've seen different journals publish editorials, these sort of these sort of like chest beating editorials about how they were snookered and now they're never going to get snookered again because of this very specific scheme that no one has ever heard of until you go back into our archives and look at the fact that a year before or two years before a journal editor at, you know, at the very same publisher had published essentially the same editorial. I don't mean plagiarizing, but, you know, the same exact thing that had already been discovered. So one of the things that doesn't happen and that I would say really should happen in a sort of how does knowledge get known ecosystem, right? In, in a way, in a place where we're trying to actually learn from, from previous mistakes, past mistakes, and, and just learn from one another is that there's not a lot of sharing between fields. And I, I think that's an issue. Yeah, and that that's that, and that brings me back to this issue of uh, the sci the culture of science, and also education in science. Um, to, to again cite one of my former guests, uh, Bradley Alger, he talks very uh, in, in great length at, uh, about the um, the hypothesis, which and and this and this would seem to tie into what you're saying because. It, the hypothesis, according to Karl Popper, is that, yes, we can falsify it, but we can never be certain of our results. And it would appear very often that this is just sort of paid lip service by scientists. In other words, the uncertainty of their findings is not forefront in their mind. Bradley Alger says uh, one of the early reviews of his book was a little heavy on philosophy, and his response is more or less, well, actually, scientists need more philosophy. They need to be thinking about what they're doing. And and, and it might be, um, Ivan, that this tunnel vision involved, yeah? I mean, if you consider also on top of that, the increased specialization where subfields inside of, say, biology don't really fully understand the research of the next one, well, then no surprise that they don't see coming from other fields the same sorts of issues of uh, veracity, um, the same problems with retraction um, that they may then have or are having without even noticing it. Um, I, I guess I guess I'd like to hear your your feedback on on that uh, issue. Well, I think I mean so there's two things. I mean, one is in terms of just uncertainty. I, I'd like to just underscore what you're just you were just saying about. Uh, I, I would say it's it certainly it would be helpful. And and I read Popper and 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 others. Uh, you know, as um, I was sort of learning about science in college and actually taught a course or led a seminar. Uh, several years ago uh, at NYU, where I teach about you know what happens when science goes wrong, and we read Popper, we read you know Kuhn, and uh, et cetera. You can imagine some others. The um, and so I would argue, yes, it's, it would be useful to uh, have that kind of uh, basis, that that way of um, helping to think around about the world. But I think um, at least as important is this notion of intellectual humility, which I 
think uh, you know characterizes all great scientists. Um, uh, they may not be humble in other ways, by the way, but what I mean is intellectual humility, knowing that there are things you don't know and knowing that there are there's huge uncertainty even in the things that appear to be well known. That is not, okay, and I want to underscore this, that is not a sort of license to endlessly doubt and basically cast out and sort of use the, you know, what the, uh, the cigarette menu, the tobacco uh, companies did, sort of manufacture doubt just in your own, toward your own end. I'm talking about saying we are quite, quite sure about X, Y, or Z. There's, there are some questions around it. Um, we can't quite be sure about the, the exact magnitude, for example, but we know that it points in this direction. That kind of humility actually can, I think, do wonders for public discourse uh, and also just, um, you know, a sense of, you know, what's really happening. And, and I, I think that uh, actually goes a long way uh, toward just, again, a, a sort of better understanding by everyone of, you know, what science really can do uh, and what science can't do. Um, and the fact that it almost can't do anything in, in the sense that it can get us closer to the truth. It can certainly ferret out facts and, you know, in wonderful ways and, and critical ways, increase our understanding of the world and, and grow knowledge. Uh, but it can't tell us what to do with that knowledge. Um, and that is, I think, honestly, part of what we're living with uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, and um, this is uh, certainly what I'm referring to. This list, this I, I, I would see, I would see it already. Um, I teach uh, students uh, writing courses in, in in the sciences, and I would see it already in the culture that they're used to in the lab, for instance. That it's you know produce the results, produce the results, run the experiments, and that stepping back that you're talking about and thinking about why questions. I mean, <laughs> clearly we can't have you know. Uh, philosophers who are scientists necessarily. I mean, I don't think we can also rule that out as a possibility. The work, the lines of work uh, do differ. But um, I think science might gain a lot by by realizing that there are likelihoods of error and what they're basing their work on. And those errors might be the as yet not falsified hypothesis right? So that they understand the basis of the sorts of knowledge that they're able to create. But it might just be plain and simple that their paper is in the retraction watch database and <laughs> that they're citing and that needs to come out of their introduction. So I have a question for the both of you. That the um, I saw a paper yesterday, which I think is under embargo, so I'm not sure how much I can talk about it. But uh, Apparently, the public trust in science, which in the United States has eroded pretty radically over the last couple of years, has actually increased in Germany uh, during the pandemic. And I'm wondering what whether this conversation that we're having now about uh, the best way that scientists can be, you know, both humble and reassuring at the same time about about the the integrity of their data and what it all means. Um, how can how can they move forward without worsening what I think pretty clearly is is a more localized problem than we want to believe, uh, at least, you know, in, for the United States, at least. Uh, you could argue that the last two years have seen some of the most impressive science in the history of humanity. And yet the uh, our country in particular uh, is now at a place where um, uh, where people on Twitter think they know more than people at uh, the NIH? Well, I, I think it does get back to, 
again, this sort of humility and, and being able to say, here's what we don't know. Uh, if you talk, by the way, to, um, you know, crisis management uh, PR professionals, uh, you know, the, the, the good ones and the ones that sort of, you know, really understand uh, what they're uh, sort of thinking about. There's someone named Peter Sandman, whose work I always find enlightening and insightful. Um, you know, it, it's very much about here's what we don't know and being clear about that, uh, because what it does is it reinforces trust when you say, and here's what we do know, or here's what we're reasonably sure about. Um, the problem is that for various reasons, and, and I would argue a lot of them do have to do with publish or perish and the way grants are handed out, uh, scientists are forced to be so much more certain or appear so much more certain and, and say that they're so much more certain than they they really are. It's like they are their salespeople rather than scientists sometimes. Um, and I and I say that, you know, having worked in the corporate world for many years and, and, you know, recognizing the extremely high value of salespeople so that I could have a job. Right. Um, so I, I just I think we need to, to sort of think through that. And, and going back, um, Daniel, to what you were saying about, you know, the database, uh, our, our retraction watch database, you know, again, thinking about uh, my awful sewage metaphor, but uh, the database can function as something both downstream and upstream. So we have uh, more than 32,000 retractions in our database. That's far more by, you know, multiples uh, uh, different than you will find in any other uh, similar database. It's why uh, people are licensing it. And we're happy to, of course, work with anyone who'd like to do that, are licensing it to make sure that they are actually, whatever they're doing, knows uh, and what and they know that papers have been uh, retracted. And so the the problem is, A, people keep citing retracted papers as if they had not been retracted. I mean, think about that for a minute. Uh, it's, it's one thing to say, as we often do, there are lots of papers that should be retracted and that aren't. And we can discuss that and sort of say what, you know, what numbers we think and estimates and what have you. Um, but the point is, even when papers are retracted, so you have you have the alarm, you should have the alarm, you should be told people are still basing their work and they're wasting tremendous amounts of time and effort, usually, by the way, uh, by graduate students and postdocs who get very frustrated because they can't actually, uh, you know, re you know, uh, replicate the findings that they're trying to replicate. Because, in fact, the paper had been retracted and, and nobody knows uh, because publishers aren't actually announcing that and letting people know. That's, again, what our database, one of the sort of main reasons for our database is to let people know about that. Um, but, you know, it just, it, it reflects an incredible amount of, I don't know, maybe lack of, of care, lack of, um, you know, again, why isn't peer review catching that? Why aren't the systems that are set up catching that? Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I would argue it's negligent to not at least check. And, and yet here we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would also, Adam, like to say something um, about what you say, uh, public uh, mistrust and science and so on. Um, there's, there's plenty appearance of that over here in Europe. I, I, I work from Germany and um, it, it, it varies from, from region to region, but there's, there's plenty enough for it to be ugly and also... Um, yeah, a hindrance to perhaps uh, vaccine uh, campaigns and public safety and health and so on. I, I would perhaps say this on the science scientist side, I, I would really perhaps hark back to the hypothesis. I would say that it, 
you know, the best you can do to hypothesis is to falsify it, which means you you don't you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you continue not to know. You continue to know as best as we can at the moment, which is a bit of mental acrobatics that does demand some, I would almost argue, some training in philosophy. I mean, uh, Ivan, you call it humility. I concur. Yes, it's a sort of humility, but it's a sort of humility you have to also be able to work with. You know, it needs to make sense. But I would say on the public side, what's going on is an odd sort of logic where one piece of information beats 100. Yeah, if, 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 if it comes out on a Twitter feed or something that, oh, did you know that this new vaccine only has 80% uh, protection against the virus and why are we taking it? Yeah, all of the other arguments for the immunization, which occurs through very many people having this 80% uh, protection, the all the science that went into the creation of the vaccine, the the public health officials who are thinking through the epidemic and epidemiological, epidemiological measures which need to be taken, all of that just gets knocked over with this, did you know, right? This one piece of information that seems to satisfy so many other people, so, too many people's, um, yeah, sense of what needs to be done and what is scientific. Well, I would argue that um, I mean I agree, but I think we we didn't need Twitter for that uh, for that phenomenon. Uh, you know, how many times have you talked to somebody and they said, "Well, I took that drug and it didn't work for me," or I you know I took the vaccine and I got influenza. Well, the reason that happens is because not everything is one hundred percent effective, and if you know enough people, you're going to know somebody who wasn't benefit who didn't benefit from a particular treatment or a vaccine or whatever it was. Um, that's just the nature of uncertainty and of uh, the law of large numbers, I guess. Um, so you, you do raise an interesting and important question, I think, about, um, about how the public internalizes and consumes medical and particular information. Um, I don't know whether we'll ever be able to sort of titrate it, it well enough so that when a physician says to a patient, you know, madam, this, when I give you this high uh, blood pressure drug, um, a hundred people who take it, 95 will improve, but that means you have a 5% chance of, of not, of not doing well on it. Um, people will take it because they think the chance is much, much better, right? Because I'm not going to be the, the 5%, I'm going to be the 95%. So we don't, I think as a species have a very good understanding of, of risk and of, uh, reward and, uh, so we're sort of stuck with that when it comes to the consumption of, of medical information. Well, and I, I think particularly during the pandemic, and I would echo what Adam said, we, we didn't need Twitter to do this. It's just that it, it is uh, it has a greater influence, right, social media and, and what have you, because so many more people are involved in the conversation. And also because it is it has been the, the dominant theme uh, of our lives for two years. I mean, maybe it's ebbing now and, and you know, maybe flow back again later. Uh, but clearly, there are far more people's eyeballs uh, and ears and what have you uh, actually, you know, paying attention to this now. And so, of course, you're going to have everything magnified. But I would say, Daniel, that there's a really interesting I mean, you're absolutely right to say, oh, there's oh, well, this one did. But did you know? And here's this one fact, by the way, not all they're not all even facts. Some of sort of alleged facts or speculation um, that completely upturns this entire idea. Um, and I want to say two things about that. One is that it is very unevenly applied. So somehow it, it you know, the sort of uh, if you're a skeptic about a certain thing and you 
have sort of confirmation bias, as we say, to, to sort of find what's wrong with that. And there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that kind of skepticism. Uh, in fact, skepticism is great, um, but you only seem to apply it to things that you've already decided don't work. That isn't really a, a great thing because somehow you never seem to apply that to the things that you claim do work, right? There's this false, you know, real, real sort of logical fallacy. Well, because I found one little, you know, issue with X theory or with this vaccine or with something else, um, I, you know, you what you should really do is go buy the supplements that I'm peddling, right? Um, and and that's and that will somehow uh, save you or, or prevent COVID for you. And that though, that's not a that that's not an exaggeration of what's actually happening. That is actually happening. Um, or, or I'm going to get lots more attention for sort of questioning things that seem to be out there. Um, and that's, again, I mean, in the abstract, that, that actually is great for skepticism. But when you see where it actually leads and when you see the, you know, sometimes the, the I don't want to say intellectual dishonesty, but uh, for incredibly uneven application of the skepticism, I, I think that's where, you know, that's where we uh, sort of really uh, run into issues. Yeah, I would I would say it's probably actually not even very often an example of skepticism as an example of trying to get what you want and and trying to create a sense of belongingness. Um, so identifying through such statements or beliefs, which uh, indeed the the question becomes difficult: is this uh, uh, mendacious? Is this really a malicious intent, or is it somebody just so thoroughly fooling themselves uh, that the security that they gain by belonging then to the group that you know, believe the same things uh, gives them the reward that they need for that. Uh, exactly, and 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 it's a. I, I would think we'd all agree that's a. It's an open question, but one that we at least have to, uh, you know, have to entertain. And um, again, to go back to if uh, if scientists or and certainly public health officials uh, were more forthright about the fact that there that it, nothing is perfect, um, you know, when you when you sort of, you know, have people in those positions saying things like 100% safe, um, you know, you will not get COVID. I mean, they've said things like that. Um, I, I guess, I, I mean, and again, I wouldn't want to speak for either of the two of you, but I suspect that, that you would all agree that all of us, we know that's not true. And um, we sort of, we understand why they're doing it. Uh, we understand the need to simplify messages, but all it does is basically give ammunition to people who, whether for good reason, bad reason, or doesn't even matter what reason, you know, end up uh, using that to say, well, you know, maybe nothing else they say is trustworthy either. Whereas if you go at it with, you know, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And yes, there are around the edges some issues, but overwhelmingly, it is much better to, you know, have the, the, the risk benefit is to, uh, is much better to have the vaccine than not have it. That is a different way of of approaching this. It isn't going to get everyone to sort of do what you think that they should do, but it is much less likely to have this back, you know, this backlash uh, and this very public, uh, you know, discussion and frankly, um, you know, vituperative discussion um, that, that, that I, I don't think is helping us. And quite, in fact, I think it's harming us. And I think I'd just like to add one thing about this. And I know we've been hitting this subject pretty hard, which is pretty far afield from what Ivan and I were here to talk about, but um, I think COVID in some sense is a special case, not entirely, but um, this to me, because of the, of the politics, I should say, I mean, I think a lot of the people who, who are out there, you know, 
questioning uh, the validity of research around COVID are the same ones who think that Donald Trump was right when he said, if you injected yourself with bleach, you'd get rid of the infection. Um, but I think part, much of the problem um, with, with, certainly in our country, is that basic science education for people who are not going to be scientists, I'm talking about the elementary school level, high school level, is woefully inadequate. Um, I mean, you can, you can get through high school, I think, in this country without having taken any real science class. I mean, maybe you might have had a biology class in some way, but it's desultory. And um, we just need to do a much better job as a society of giving our population just the basic building blocks of a scientific education. So they know what science does. They don't have to be able to read a study. No one, that's not realistic. But to just know what scientists scientists do and what science is would be, I think it would probably raise our, would have raised our vaccination rates from, you know, which not, when you think about it, not horrifically bad, what, 70% roughly uh, for a country of 330 million people, but maybe up into the 80s. Like, I don't think you're going to get everybody because some people are intransigent completely, but um, I, I think we, we just need to do a better job of, of public education in our country. Yeah, well, th thank you for that, Adam. And I've I've been trying to lead uh, the discussion and the position of uh, Retraction Watch very far upstream and across the whole process. And I, I, I'm also thankful for your reminder. We've we've come far afield. We have. <laughs> so I'd like to bring us d directly right back into um, the uh, work that Retraction Watch does. And I, and I have in front of me right now, and I'll just sketch it out briefly for my listeners from the June uh, 2021 issue of The Economist, where Retraction Watch data. Are also was um, used to create uh, a graphic which gives us an overview of the papers that have been retracted, the citations to these, and the citations of papers that cited the original retracted paper. So we've got three lines along this graph telling us what's going on. And uh, the trend I would see is retractions are certainly increasing, yes. Citations Absolutely. to citations to retracted papers, uh, very, very high. But from what I can read off the graph, and I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about this, the trend appears to have peaked in 2005. Is that, is that, am I reading that wrong then? The, the trend toward, you mean retractions or to the site or the citations of retracted papers? Uh, in, in fact, every uh, uh, thing, from what I could tell, the citations of retracted papers in uh, 2005 is uh, about 30,000, and then it comes down about 5,000 or so, I can see, in 2015. The papers retracted uh, is steady um, at around 9,000 a year. Um, well, the uh, yeah, the, I, I think, the uh, again, and the, the, the way that they – I mean, it's actually uh, – this is not at all to cast doubt on on, on what you're looking at, uh, and we of course are, are familiar with it. Uh, and there are always nuances. I, I think I'll just say, in terms of retractions, that which is where we are, you know, most confident in terms of our understanding. Uh, me and Adam, I mean, uh, the retractions actually uh, continue to increase, uh, both uh, in terms of an absolute number and in terms of a uh, a percentage of of the literature. And and there are a couple of reasons why. There seems to always be a little bit of a, a plateau or even maybe decline, although usually more of a plateau. So first, let me give the numbers. Um, in the year 2000, there were about 
uh, 40 retractions uh, and uh, throughout the entire literature, which, you know, again, going back to something Adam was saying about how little we really understood of the landscape, we thought was still the figure in 2010 when we launched. Uh, we were wrong. Um, we are free to, we, we like to admit that when we are, um, and uh, we've done so for years. Uh, and there were about 400 refractions uh, that year, just from, of papers from scientific journals. In fact, there were many more uh, of conference abstracts we later learned, uh, but those are, depending on the field, less more or less important. Um, last year, in the year 2021, there were just shy of 3,300 retractions. So we went from uh, about, um, again, 40 per year uh, in, 20, in 2000 to 3,300 in 2021. Um, now, that did, over that period of two decades or 21 years, uh, we did see an increase in the number of papers published uh, you know, roughly probably a quadrupling, I'd, I'd say. It might be a bit more than that, a bit less, but, you know, call it a quadrupling. Um, 3,300 to uh, 40 is, um, you know, what is that, an, an 80-something times, uh, you know, growth, whereas a quadrupling, yeah, it's a quadrupling. And so clearly the number of retractions uh, has risen and, by the way, continues to rise even as a percentage of the number of papers published. And, and very briefly, I'd say that most of that has to do with scrutiny and the fact that there are so many of these uh, really terrific and critically important and uh, either volunteer or severely underpaid, uh, mostly volunteer uh, sleuths who are finding these issues. So I think overall, the number of retractions has continued to increase. Now, whether or not citations to those retractions have continued to increase, uh, I, think, I think it's a bit more unclear. And, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, it sort of depends which data set you use and all of those things. Um, I think it it's still a very large number we should be concerned about, even if it's sort of plateauing or or even decreasing. Um, but also remember that all of these things have significant time lags. So we often look and we say that you shouldn't really pay attention to, if you're looking at trends, if you're interested in trends, retraction rates for uh, any more recently than, say, three years ago. And the reason is that retractions take on average three years. So if, for example, we're looking now at people are looking at retractions of COVID-19 papers and saying, oh, well, you know, this is really, it's a big number. It's a small number. You know, I, we, we've said, and this is the letter we, that I referred to earlier, uh, we've said we, we have no idea because we're waiting to see actually how long, you know, we're waiting at least three years from publication to sort of see whether we're looking at, we're comparing like or like or, or, you know, apples and oranges or not. And so I, I think that's really important, but that's also true in terms of citations, right? So yes, most citations happen within a relatively short period of time, but there's also a, a tail effect, uh, you know? And so um, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think the, the big picture to me uh, is not so much whether or not it is, uh, you know, at this point, whether it's plateauing or declining even or, or growing even, um, but that it's such a big number to begin with. and you know, again, one of the things we're really interested in, and this is probably a bit, um, you know, we're, we're sort of home team, uh, not advantage here, but sort of thinking about it from our point of view, uh, to an extent, um, now that our database has been integrated into various ways that people discover the literature or check references or sort of get alerts about their libraries, you can use that, you know, you can do that in um, uh, different re reference software programs like Zotero and EndNote and papers. Uh, there are other ways to, to do that as well. 
Um, we're we're curious to see now that that one of those has been around for two and a half years in terms of integrating the database. The other two just came online late last year. You know, let's look in a year or two or three uh, and see whether or not things have changed, whether because of that or other reasons. Um, are people citing retracted literature much less often? That's really informative, I think, because I don't. I would imagine very many scientists wouldn't have put that time lag into their thinking or the people who are concerned about the state of science um, in understanding the numbers and what it is that's about to come our way, as you say, in the next year or two. And I would say also, and I'm going to guess here, but uh, it's it's very helpful to have your correction as, as, as my reading of the trend was perhaps also uh, not entirely uh, on about, let's say, the bread and butter issues of what Retraction Watch is doing. You mentioned the database, for example, and its integration into reference software as being a major step forward. And this, of course, wouldn't be you know, the headlines of the latest uh, scandal involving somebody who was faking data. I would imagine also, um, I have a lawyer friend who told me that criminal cases look nothing like they do on television. They can be dreary and boring and <laughs> the investigation process can you know, have none of the highs or, or wonderful moments that, that you see on television. So I, I suppose what I'm, 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 I'm driving at is uh, what, are, what is the investigation process like? Wh- where is it that uh, the information comes into you from, um, et cetera, et cetera? So that's a funny analogy. And, uh, you know, I actually think I'm always impressed when I go to an operating room, how much different it is from Grey's Anatomy. You know, the the light and especially and in courtrooms, the lighting is different. The lighting is always much worse, much less romantic. And that's sort of how I feel about, you know, the whole retraction process. Like um, so we we get we get information from a lot of different sources. um, But the most I think and maybe Ivan would disagree, but I hope he would agree that the most interesting cases are usually ones where um, the work has been the hardest for the editors involved. It involves the most sort of grueling back and forth with with counterparts in other countries and digging and digging and not letting go of a of a of a bone that um, you know is going to lead to to you know a much deeper, much bigger skeleton in a closet. And, um, the case that Ivan, you know, generously mentioned earlier uh, uh, that that we broke when I was on Anesthesiology News years ago uh, involved an editor um, who's really, I think, uh, been a hero in this whole endeavor of, of research integrity, certainly in the field of anesthesiology, um, who who spent spent um, I think he said about twenty first percent of his time uh, pursuing misconduct cases uh, that had come before him. In this case. Uh, it was it was many many hours months of work, uh, and then he broke another case uh, or was instrumental in breaking another case involving a guy named Joachim Bolt, who is a German anesthetist, critical care specialist, who um, I think is now third on our on our uh, leaderboard with nearly a hundred tractions, uh, and that involved and and this editor Steve Schaefer doesn't speak German at least not very well, uh, but he had to deal with research integrity people in in Germany for months and dragged on for for years. Um, and so those sorts of cases are the ones uh, that that I personally get most excited about because it shows me that people really care, like debtors really care about cleaning up their literature. It'd be very easy, in my view, for somebody to say, well, I just don't have the time 
to uh, to do this and do my clinical duties and edit this journal. So I'm just going to, you know, I'll make one or two emails or phone calls. And then if I don't get a satisfactory response, I'll just let it drop. Yeah. And well, let me say a couple things. Um, I, I chuckled as you were talking about, as you were both talking about television shows. So uh, first, a sort of tongue in cheek disclosure, which is that um, uh, my wife actually works for uh, Dateline, uh, which is, of course, all about criminal, uh, widely syndicated uh, uh, criminal cases, um, murder cases almost exclusively uh, uh, here in the U.S. And I think it's, it's syndicated around the world. So I, I'm, I'm familiar with the sort of uh, drama that uh, doesn't always match reality uh, or it matches reality. It just isn't typical, I should say, you, you, when you know all those details and have all that, that information. The other is, by the way, to, to recommend a series um, that, is, that is not true crime, um, but that I have been uh, very taken by just quite recently, thanks to uh, uh, someone I saw, Nick Brown, who's one of the sleuths, he tweeted about it, and I, I sort of checked it out. Uh, it's called. It's from NHK Television in, in uh, Japan, um, and it's called How to Be Likable in a Crisis. And the, the very first, the, the, the two very first episodes are actually all about, uh, and this is a dark comedy, this is not reality again, uh, but all about a someone who takes a job at a, a university in PR, um, and the very next week... Uh, there's a major scientific scandal that, that breaks out um, and it's remarkably well done. Again, it's dark comedy. It's, it's farcical, but uh, the details are amazing. And, and you even have sort of, uh, you know, Western blots being uh, on television, which, uh, you know, these are of course um, something that a lot of scientists use in the lab. And, and it's, it's kind of amazing, really well done. The consultant obviously knows something. Um, but then the, the final thing, and Adam, I, I'm reasonably sure that given that we've worked together for so long, but maybe that, uh, reflects uh, the, about what I'm about to say, but uh, that reflects the 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 fact that we, uh, because we think it is of course important for people who are talking about other people's errors and mistakes and even misconduct to uh, correct ourselves. I, I just want to correct in terms of Joaquin Bolt. He's, he's actually number two on our list now. With, I think it's 160 something retractions. Uh, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> we do that all so. the time. We do it all the time. We yeah. edit each other, and uh, you know. Yeah, it's so hard. It's so hard to be right all the time, isn't it? (laughs) The work work is much better for it. Um, Adam, Adam, you mentioned there uh, the really interesting stories as being the ones of people hanging on and 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 let's say going the extra mile. Um, There was a wonderful piece that uh, uh, Retraction watched it together with Undark Magazine, which uh, shows again a bit of this sort of uh, investigation. I mean, it's really about what misconduct does not mean for a person's career. Um, Much of the article goes into the issue of, well, privacy laws versus uh, right to know. And I wonder if you could maybe just uh, sketch out uh, what it is that we can learn from what it means if a somebody who's been uh, proven fraudulent or at least accused of being fraudulent in, in their data, what it means if they begin moving around then and uh, continuing their practices or entering new labs, publishing new papers and so on? Um, well, what it means, th- thanks for, for bringing up that, that, that article. Um, we certainly have seen cases of researchers who seem to be able to have second, third and fourth acts in science, uh, despite having been found guilty of misconduct at an earlier institution. And um, what it means, uh, I think, is that for one, hiring bodies are 
either they're hamstrung because of, of threats of, of um, or perceived threats of legal jeopardy, um, if, of asking about a, an employee's uh, history at an institution, um, or they just are too lazy to, to check um, and, and do any sort of background work. Um, but uh, as you point out, um, what it means is that some of these people, and it's definitely not the majority, um, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but some of these people are able to continue working in science, continue publishing. Now, um, is it always bad that somebody who made a mistake can continue to work in the field of their passion and their choosing? And the answer to that, at least as far as I'm concerned, is no. I mean, if you, if you make a mistake, you deserve a second chance. Um, that's why the Office of Research Integrity, I believe, doesn't ban you generally from um, from receiving uh, research funds, um, you know, permanently in your career. You get uh, if you if you're found to have committed misconduct using federal money, you have a, a have a sort of supervisory period of several years. It could be three. I think we've seen five, uh, but it almost never is. You are permanently disbarred from receiving federal funding to do research. Um, and I, I think that's fair. Um, we, we also see that some people who, who commit misconduct sort of immediately drop out. I think more often than not, they, they leave science. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's probably a good thing. Um, but uh, I'm sort of curious what Ivan, what Ivan thinks that, you know, the, the, the recidivism means sort of in a larger sense. Yeah, I, I, I actually I do have some thoughts on that that I want to share. Um, uh, but then just to get to that piece also for a moment, uh, I, again, very much appreciate your uh, referring to it. This is an Undark. It was actually a, a collaboration between us and Undark. And was done, the uh, the work was done, and the byline on the piece is uh, Allison McCook, who was our editor for uh, a long while at Retraction Watch and really just did a tremendous uh, job, well, both for Retraction Watch and in that particular piece. And the reason I just want to come back to that briefly is that um, – uh, one of the things we do, and, and the, the genesis of that piece, the reason that piece actually has, I think, uh, whatever punch it does have, is that we obtained a lot of public records. Um, and that is something that we do as journalists. I mean, anyone can do it, um, but we consider it part of our journalistic method to request uh, public records, in this case, investigation reports, as well as uh, correspondence between uh, some of the officials at universities and, and between them uh, and also them with uh, federal agencies who are looking at this. Also, of course, with the people who are, have been found uh, guilty of misconduct um, and sort of and that, that's how you uncover things. So it was one of the ways you uncover things. Um, and I think that that is also it's in some ways it's sad that we have to file public records requests for that in other ways. Um, it's it's just we're happy to do it and we think it's critically important. Um, but which brings me, though, to sort of, you know, Adam's question and this larger question of recidivism and what's really happening. You know, again, to, to think more broadly about the fact that, you know, uh, right now people are looking at researchers who are either uh, been found to have uh, committed, uh, you know, sexual harassment or sexual misconduct or bullying behavior, I mean, various sort of bad behavior that isn't scientific misconduct per se, by any sort of strict definition, but it's clearly misconduct of another sort. And there's this sort of, there, there's this term that had, that uh, some have created uh, called, uh, you know, pass the harasser. Uh, and this notion that, you know, because people are so afraid of whether, again, as Adam said, being sued or what have you, 
um, you know, they don't even mention it to people who they know are trying to hire someone, uh, you know, on a reference check. Uh, that is really uh, pretty awful. Again, if we're thinking, if we're talking about sort of downstream effects, we're talking about pollution. Um, people who are known to have committed a, some kind of misconduct, it's not that they are known to have done it. They were upfront about it in the interview. And then um, the person who hired them decided, you know what, you you seem to have changed. You seem to have learned from this. I mean, I'm all for second, third, fourth chances. Um, I think we all need them. Um, that being said, I'm not for sec- even a second chance if no one if someone hides the fact that they've done something like that. And so that's really the issue. But again, it's not just about scientific misconduct. It's about all sorts of misconduct. And frankly, it's not only in academia. I mean, this happens in it happens in politics. It happens in uh, corporate America or corporate anywhere uh, in, in companies. And so I, I think it's, it's again, um, continuing that pollution. Yeah, and, and that's what the article really brings out so balanced in, in its uh, portrayal of what's going on. On the one hand, it does give even to potential reader perpetrators the idea that, yeah, you really should be upfront. You should talk about, you know, an ongoing uh, investigation or even a, a you know case where your your fraudulence has been found yeah this shouldn't be something that the people go looking for but on the other hand giving advice to potential future employers to notice the signs when certain questions are asked and the way that they're answered either a question to a former employer or to the um, applicant him or herself that you notice there's something that's being covered up here and, and and that I found in the article also wonderful that it that it took the round view of of all sides. Um, well, we I, I would try like to do to go that as way- best we can. Yeah, go ahead. It, 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 it does work there, it, it, and it works so many other places. I, I'd, I'd like to take one more of these mundane issues, way upstream and way downstream. That seems to be our motif for today. Um, on the uh, database end. Um, the licensing, licensing and, and using of it, how, how that works and way downstream, where, where do you see it as, how do you see the best um, communication of a retraction? Who should be doing it and what should it look like? Sure. So, you know, I'm happy to, of course, talk about the licensing in, in some detail, not obviously a painful detail for your, your listeners. Um, and, and I want to be clear that uh, our goal uh, has always been to have the database uh, be used by uh, as many people as possible with with as few restrictions as possible. Um, that is the goal, and and we're always working toward that. Um, but I also want to say that uh, doing this work uh, is very resource intensive. Uh, as Adam and I uh, are talking to you today, this is uh, we're volunteers, and and frankly, we're happy to be. This is uh, you know I don't want to speak for Adam, but um, if not our life's work, then certainly something that we are that is central to our professional identities. Um, and, and we just think it's creating a lot of value and, and doing a lot of, you know, hopefully good for the world. Um, but I think, uh, but we do have a, a small staff, one full-time person who who's who we have to support. I mean, we don't have to support her. We have to pay her uh, a salary. And then we have some other uh, expenses, of course, and, and contractors as well. Um, and so while we were very fortunate in early days to have um, some very uh, generous and uh, I think you know forward-thinking uh, philanthropic funding. Um, given the way that uh, philanthropic funding works, that is no longer the case. It hasn't been for several years. Uh, and so as part of an exercise we went through to think through how to sustain ourselves, uh, licensing the database to uh, people who used it to 
for products that they sold in some way or, or sort of used as uh, ways to entice sales, if you will, um, became a really uh, promising venue. So um, that means that we license the database again to, uh, and it could be nonprofit or for-profit companies. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, some of them are quite large. Uh, EndNote, of course, is part of Claravit. Um, and uh, we license the database to them. And uh, I think they are very pleased by uh, the ability to use it. Um, uh, we also, uh, again, smaller nonprofits. And of course, there are various uh, terms and things, which I won't get into here. It's too boring for a podcast, but I'm happy to discuss it with anyone who wanted to follow up. Uh, but I also want to say, if a scholar comes to us, uh, and this happens at least once a week now, a scholar comes to us who wants to study retractions, who wants to understand scientific error or misconduct and, and what have you, um, and the and retraction rates, you know, as we were discussing, sort of what the trends really are and what can we learn from that. Uh, those are always fee-free licenses. So in other words, uh, we just have to have them sign a, a data use agreement, which they're used to doing, um, and the university signs off on that, and then they can use the data for free. I mean, and we're happy to do that. Uh, we, we've been, the, the database has been cited by dozens and dozens of papers uh, since its launch in 2018, and we know there are many more in the pipeline um, because of uh, how many of these uh, we've uh, done over the years. So anyway, we that that's sort of on the licensing side. You know, the future of it, I, again, I we would love to see it sort of seamlessly, if you will, integrated into, you know, every time you you sort of see a paper or even think about seeing a paper or find something in your search results, um, that it it is immediately obvious whether the paper has been retracted or not. Um, and I think that, you know, we're getting, you know, I wouldn't say we're anywhere near universal on that yet, but that's really what we'd like to uh, get to. Um, the other thing that we are conscious of um, is that uh, we can always be adding value to the database, either by even increasing its comprehensiveness even more. Um, a bit more than a year ago, for example, we added, after realizing that there were so many retractions that were not uh, in English journal, English language journals, um, we added the ability to have non-Latin uh, characters. So we actually can add, uh, you know, and we have, we've added a few thousand from Russia. Um, we've added others from, you know, other countries. Uh, so we want to be even more comprehensive and also just add value in terms of refining um, how we are categorizing and our definitions. There are always new reasons for attraction. There are various views that people would like and sort of uh, ways to, to sort of think about the taxonomy. Um, so, you know, anything we can do to, uh, to can improve the data set, um, because at the end of the day, everyone should have access to it. Um, and that's what we want. Um, and because publishers, as of now, are not doing what uh, they either want us to think they're doing or actually have committed to doing in many cases and yet aren't, uh, providing that metadata uh, to uh, various indices and to other discovery platforms um, and even sometimes their own platforms lack the data. Uh, you know, that that's why we feel the database is quite necessary. Um, there is a world in which uh, all of that is happening and our database becomes obsolete. Um, and uh, I, I'm not necessarily hoping for that to happen, but in some ways I am because, A, I mean, maybe Adam and I will find something else to do, uh, and Allison as well, um, always other projects to tackle. Uh, but but actually, it means that the system sort of is working the way it should. Uh, and, um, you know, but until then, uh, which does seem quite far off, uh, we, uh, we we hope that it can, uh, that our database can be useful that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, the, the other issue I, I, I had, perhaps I can pose it to Adam, was uh, the actual communication 
of the retractions. Um, there's been so many different formats of uh, communications of even just one retraction in one journal, according to when you look and across journals, there seems to be no standard. Um, or even should it be the journals who are doing it? Should it be in multiple places and different sorts of forms? Um, what would what would be the ideal there? Or if there's no ideal, what would be a workable solution for the time being? Well, so I think we, we do have I think in our mind a sort of ideal retraction, which is not just the way it's worded, which would be transparent about the nature of the problem, uh, but also the the timing of it. It would be it would be uh, quick, uh, so that citations couldn't continue um, uh, inadvertently, um, and it would um, uh, it would happen um, in a way that if the journal had um, had issued, say, a press release about the retra- about the retracted paper when it first came out. They would issue a press release about the retraction uh, when it came out, so that journalists could be notified uh, and that the information would be disseminated on every publishing platform, and not just you know that it might appear on on our in our database and maybe on our website, but wouldn't show up in some of the other databases, like for example uh, PubMed, uh, for months after or maybe even years. Um, so in terms of, um, I will say when we first started this project, uh, years ago, one of the things that struck us immediately was how woefully inadequate most retraction notices were. And I think, uh, Ivan would agree with me that things have gotten, have gotten miles better, uh, on average. Sure, some journals are still uh, issuing notices that say this article was retracted. That's very rare. That used to be almost the norm uh, back in the in the two thousands. Um, so things are getting better. And yes, it's a slow process, but uh, we have certainly seen seen improvement. Well, Adam and Ivan, you've been very generous with your time. One one last question to uh, both of you, I suppose. I'd like to hear uh, your opinions on it. And. In the area we work, accountability journalism, I uh, think it's probably accept- acceptable to call it. Um, it would appear, we've done quite a lot of talk about the processes of, of research. It would appear to me, though, that it's necessary that your work uh, stand outside of that uh outside of those processes, so f- merely for the sake of conflict of interest. So a retraction watch, a retraction watch itself um, needs to be looking in as how the research is going on um, and not necessarily understood as an integral part of it. Is, is, does that make sense? Would you, would you, would you uh, sort of sign that view? I, I, I certainly would. And, and it's, I, I think, um, uh, one way to think about that is that I, I don't think we would have been able to have the freedom uh, to have any success, whatever success we've had, uh, were we uh, beholden to the same uh, structure, the same hierarchies uh, uh, that uh, the scientists and the publishers and everyone else that we're writing about is beholden. So in other words, uh, Adam and I, I, I think, again, it's it's a it's a weakness that it has to be a volunteer activity for us at the moment. Um, but it's also a strength in that um, if we write something uh, or, or quote someone or release some uh, documents or you know something that uh, someone powerful in in academia or in science or, or scientific publishing sees as uh, critical of them and, and therefore wants to you know retaliate or somehow uh, you know punish us or, or silence us, um, they don't have very much uh, recourse. I mean, short of a 
a defamation suit, which uh, we, we've never had to face um, uh, because we we like to think because we are we know how to you know navigate that and, and understand what libel actually is as opposed to threats. Um, but, you know, we short of that, uh, I, my career, my professional future uh, depends uh, not at all on on publisher parish in the in the in that sense uh, or in um, sort of pleasing the, uh, the the sort of scientific masters, if you will. Um, I am I, I am an academic. Uh, I do teach uh, at New York University, NYU and um, have a role there that, uh, you know, I'm on contract there and all the rest of it. But if anything, any kind of accountability work that I do in terms of journalism, that's exactly what the uh, Institute uh, is looking for, obviously, uh, as well as teaching. And so um, I, I think that to some extent, um, it is like much accountability journalism in that uh, it is necessary, but it needs to remain outside. It needs to be, as you say, looking in um, and not uh, dependent on that same system to support it. Um, that being said, uh, that shouldn't be at all an excuse or a rationale for ignoring what's going on. Um, and so we're very pleased that there is at least the, um, again, the citations of the database, the use of by scholars of the database that says this is useful and informative, but independent. And in many ways, that's the strength of it. And Adam, would you add anything or is, uh, has Ivan put it all in? No, I, I think he put it perfectly. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you both very much. That is Adam Marcus and Ivan Duransky, co-founders of Retraction Watch. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Adam and Ivan. Goodbye. Thanks so much for having us. Goodbye. Thanks, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>